millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the History of Russia. As usual, I'm Damon and this is episode 18, Battle of the Kalko River. Thanks for listening in. Last time... We covered the life and times of Temujin stroke Genghis Khan and saw how he united the Mongol tribes through two main methods, warfare and alliances, and who with his sons and generals went on to conquer most of the Asian heartland. We also left two of those generals, Subutai and Jebe, somewhere to the north of the Caucasus mountains in winter with the remnants of their forces around 18,000 cold, hungry, weak and exhausted men confronted by a massive steppe army. In this episode, we'll look at what happened to that Mongol army, check in with Ogaday, Genghis Khan's son and successor, cover what was going on over in the land of the Rus, and then finally bring everything together at the Battle of the Kalka River in 1223. So a number of different arenas, and apologies in advance, but date-wise, I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit, but I'll try and make everything clear. Okay, and as they say on the UK edition of Love Island, not that I watch it, well, not every episode, let's crack on. So it's the year 1229 in Mongolia. Genghis and his eldest son, Jochi, are dead, and Ogaday Khan, the third son, is in the big chair. As we saw last week, Genghis had left the empire in a very healthy and organised state, and he saw his favourite son as having the perfect temperament to keep, keep things chugging along in a stable manner. And Ogaday wasn't a dynamic man, more the slow and steady type, but he was much more than just a safe pair of hands. He was pragmatic and resourceful, also knew his limitations and had no delusions that he was in the same league as his father, especially when it came to military matters. He was jovial, courteous, polite and a good judge of character and those in his immediate circle, family members and generals alike, had the utmost respect for him, including his hot-headed elder brother Chagatai, who was not an easy man to handle or get on with. But Ogaday was a Mongol Khan, and there was more to him than met the eye, as we'll soon see. But there was also maybe a darker side. Some Mongol and Persian chroniclers criticised him for an act that he, had, he allegedly committed later in his reign. And this was the ordering of a mass rape of 4,000 young Western Mongolian Oirat women, who were then either sent to his harem or sold into prostitution. But from what I can see, this would have been completely out of character. There were no other similar incidents during his lifetime, nothing that the Chronicles report. And in fact, as I previously said, no one else seems to have had a bad word to say about him. Doesn't mean he didn't do it, but it seems unlikely. 
However, there was one problem that was not just alleged. Ogade, like many of his Mongol relatives, including his younger brother Tolui, who eventually died of its effects, liked to drink or two. So much so that on a number of occasions, family members tried to get him to stop, but he wasn't having any of it. Eventually, though, and as with most alcoholics, the problem got worse, and in the end, someone in his entourage came up with what he thought was a clever solution. Yes, the great Khan could still enjoy a drink, but there was to be a strict limit of one cup of wine per day. Now, Ogade is supposed to have gone silent when told of his new regimen, and he sat and thought for a while and then said that he would abide by the new rule. And everyone breathed a huge sigh of relief, but the sources then report that he had someone make the largest drinking vessel anyone had ever seen. And I like to imagine the Khan settling down for the evening, contemplating his lot and sipping wine from a full-to-the-brim goldfish bowl-sized wine glass. And unlike his father, I think I would have liked to have been in his company on a good day. But apart from guzzling huge glasses of wine, Ogade was a busy man doing what a Mongol Khan did best, conquering lands and administering his huge empire. His army saw action and further conquests in China, Manchuria, Korea and Afghanistan. <laughs> That's topical. And even further afield in Europe. But I'm jumping ahead of things here, so just pretend you didn't hear that last bit. I'll just wait while that plane goes overhead. On the administration front, the Yasa system, established by Genghis, continued to be the bedrock of Mongol governance. But Ogade added to it, for example, by amending taxation rules and codifying rules of dress and conduct. He also reorganised the empire's subdivisions and set up a highly effective, effective postal or courier system using relays of horsemen and post stations that were set up every 25 miles. And there we'll have to leave Ogade for the time being. He really won't play any further part in our story, apart from one major event, but he really won't know too much about it. And anyway, that's to come in a later episode. Okay, where next? Well, let's head off west and get back to the Rusiskaya Zemla, or the lands of the Rus. Now, two episodes ago, we looked at the life and times of Vesevolod III, or Big Nest to his mates, and the city of Vladimir that was experiencing its own golden age in the late 12th and early 13th centuries, and which I suggested looked set to continue. So let's see how things panned out. As we know, Big Nest died in the year 1212, and next in line was his eldest son, Constantine. And as the eldest son, Constantine expected that at some point he would inherit the princedom of Vladimir and be, in effect, overlord of the Rus. However, the sources tell us that there was some kind of falling out between Vesevolod and his firstborn, and that when the old man knew he was dying, he disinherited Constantine and instead gave Vladimir to his favourite son, Yuri. So, Yuri II is the new man in charge. Constantine has sloped off into the background. The good citizens of Vladimir have breathed a collective sigh of relief. Things have returned to normal in Vladimir, 
and the golden age looks set to continue. But, whilst Constantine on the surface looked to have accepted this state of affairs, in reality he was seething, and he started to think of ways to get his hands on what he thought was rightfully his. Now he looked at the odds of defeating his younger brother and decided they were about 50-50, and so to tip things further in his favour, he decided he, he could do with an ally. But not just any old ally. He needed someone bold, someone daring. And luckily enough, down to the south, there was just the person. Here goes, Mstislav Mstislavich, yeah, that wasn't too bad, was it? Of Chernigov, or as he was also known, Mstislav the Bold, or sometimes Mstislav the Daring. And so Constantine and Mstislav, who incidentally was married to a Cuman princess, formed an alliance and they were also joined by two other Rus princes, Vladimir of Smolensk and Vladimir of Peskov. But Yuri was no mug, and sensing that the tide was going against him, formed an alliance of his own with two of his other brothers, Yaroslav, who also happened to be the son-in-law of Mstislav the Bold, and they both had issues with each other, and Sviatoslav, and really, you have to hand it to the Rus, they really know how to do a good family squabble. So we're all set, it's now the year 1216, in the red corner, we've got Constantine, Mstislav the Bold, and the two Vladimirs. And in the blue corner, we've got the brothers Yuri II, Yaroslav, and Sviatoslav. And our venue is going to be in a place called Lipitsa, uh, by the river of the same name. It's just to the north of Vladimir, and here I'm referring to the city and not the princes. Now, prior to the battle starting, Mstislav the Bold sent one of his commanders with a message to Yuri, saying that he really had no quarrel with him. It was his issues with Yaroslav that he wanted to sort out, Yaroslav being his uh, son-in-law. However, Yuri's answer was he was going to stick by his brother's side. So with that answer, battle commenced. Now unfortunately, we don't really have much of a description of what happened, and the chronicles simply tell us two things that most of the combatants fought on foot rather than, than on horseback, and that the outcome was a resounding victory for Constantine, Mstislav and the two Vladimirs, who drove the forces of Yuri, Yaroslav and Sviatoslav from the field. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yaroslav fled to the city of Pereyaslavl. But Mstislav caught up with him, and during tense negotiations it was agreed that Yaroslav could leave unarmed, but unharmed. And as for Yuri, he was packed off to look after Rostov and Yaroslavl. Mstislav then accompanied Constantine to Vladimir, the city, and Constantine was crowned as the Grand Prince. 
But this state of affairs was only to last for two years because in 1218, Constantine died to be replaced by, yes, you've guessed it, Yuri II as Grand Prince of Vladimir. During the early years of his reign, Yuri waged several wars against Volga Bulgaria, and to secure the area from Bulgarian attacks, he founded the fortress of Nizhny Novgorod, which means Lower New Town or New Town of the Lowlands, to distinguish it from the Novgorod, the Novgorod I've mentioned many times before, which is Veliki Novgorod, or Upper or Great New Town, where his brother Yaroslav was put in charge. So now it's 1222. The Rus infighting seems to be over, and Yuri is settling down to enjoy his long reign. Meanwhile, over in the Caucasus, and still in the year 1222, the two Mongolian generals, Subutai and Jeba, have emerged from their winter crossing of the mountains with the remnants of their 20,000 army. So I said 18,000 earlier, probably between 15 to 18,000 are still effective, but to be honest, that's a guess because the sources just don't put a figure on it. But however many of them there are, they're cold, hungry and exhausted, as we know, and in front of them are the massed ranks of a steppe nomad army, consisting of Alans, Circassians, and interestingly, Cumans. And they are all bristling for a fight. Now, before we get to what happened next, I'll try to clarify, well, what I think is an important point anyway. How did the steppe nomads know that the Mongols were coming? Well, remember that after pillaging their way through Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia, the Mongols used local guides to get them across the mountains. So I'm surmising that either one or two of these guides had slipped away and warned the tribes to the north of the Mongols' imminent arrival. Or word had simply spread north from the Georgians who had escaped recent fighting. There is a third possibility, in that the nomad army was on its way to fight somebody else, the Rus maybe, and just happened to bump into the Mongols, but I think that's highly unlikely. Anyhow, we're then told that using clever diplomacy, you know, the kind of diplomacy that is never explained in detail, Subutai isolated and defeated the Alans and Circassians, and then turned to face the Cumans. Or maybe that didn't happen, because another source has it that the Mongols managed to persuade the Cumans, who were led by their Khan, Khoten, to abandon the alliance by reminding them of the traditional Turkic-Mongol ties of friendship and promising them a spare of any spoils taken from the other tribes. The Cumans agreed, although why they did this is questionable. And whilst they stood off to one side, the Mongols attacked the Circassians and the Alans and completely routed them. Any guesses what the Mongols did next? Well, of course, they attacked the Cumans, who rather stupidly had split into two separate groups as they were returning back to their homeland. The Mongols destroyed the majority, executed any prisoners that they had captured, and gave chase to those that had escaped off to the northwest and occupied the eastern Cuman territories. So Khan Koten uh, was one of the Cumans that escaped, hot-footed it to the court of Prince Mstislav the Bold, and he warned his son-in-law by saying, Today the Tatars, he means the Mongols, have taken our land, and tomorrow they will take yours. 
Mustazlav, however, was unmoved and decided to offer no help to his father-in-law for two understandable reasons. Firstly, even though he'd married Kotin's daughter, he didn't see why he should help out a people that had been a major thorn in the backside of the roost for decades. And secondly, who were these so-called Mongols? Surely they were just another group of troublesome steppe nomads whom the Rus could tolerate and keep comfortably at bay until they eventually faded away like so many others had in times past. However, a year later news reached the Rus that instead of disappearing, the Mongols were on the march along the Dnieper River, a bit too close to home. So Mr. Zlav sent a call to arms to Mr. Zlav of Kiev, Mr. Zlav of Halik, and Prince Yuri II of Vladimir, who all promised their support. And with that, Mr. Zlav the Bold set out to rendezvous with the Cumans, who are now his allies, and put an end to this barbarian invasion. I don't know why these alliances all have same people, same names, but other versions of the story have Mustazlav of Halic as the organiser of the alliance, and there's even confusion amongst the sources as to which one, Halic or Chernigov, was Mustazlav the Bold. But from what I can work out, it's definitely Mustazlav of Chernigov. Well, I say definitely, I'm not sure, but I think it is. So, the Rus army starts to make its way towards the Dnieper River in May 1223. The Mongols, who are on the other side of the river, are waiting for reinforcements to arrive from Jochi, who you remember was Genghis Khan's eldest son, and he was campaigning near the Aral Sea. However, he fell ill, so no reinforcements would be coming, which meant that the Mongols would only have around 15,000 men. However, on the flip side, and something we'll explore next week, Yuri II of Vladimir hasn't turned up. We don't know why. And so the joint Rus-Kuman force is around the same size as that of the Mongols. The action starts with the Rus carrying out an encircling manoeuvre. Mstislav of Halic led a force northwards before crossing the river, and Mstislav of Kiev did the same to the south. Mstislav the Bold headed up the main force who went directly across the river with the Cumans, getting in position to attack the Mongols from the rear. Now apparently when Jebe learned of this, he sent ten envoys to the Prince of Kiev. The envoys stated that the Mongols had no food with the food, feud with the Rus and were only attacking the Cumans. They added that the Mongols were marching east, away from the Rus cities, now, Mr. Slav of Kiev rather rashly had the envoys executed and the Mongols responded by sending another set of envoys who this time kept their distance and declared war. This last step, however, was cover for the Mongol army to escape the encircling movement by smashing through the Cumans and making a dash towards the east. However, they left a rearguard of about a thousand men under the command of an officer, Hammerbeck, to report on the Rus movements and act as bait, or more like sacrificial lambs, because the Rus took the lure, communications between the princes broke down, mayhem ensued, the Mongol rearguard was destroyed, and then the entire Rus army set off in pursuit of Subutai and Jebe. However, this was all a trick, as after several days of racing across the steppe, the Mongol army suddenly turned to face their pursuers just east of the Kalka River, 
The river's actual location is known. It's thought to actually be uh, the Kelchik River, which flows into the Sea of Azov, an inland sea. Now the Rus vanguard, realising that they'd ridden headlong into a massive trap, put the brakes on and headed back to the river as quickly as they could to try and stop the rest of the army crossing. The Cumans, seeing what was about to happen, fled northwards, leaving the Rus to their fate, and then slowly and surely the Mongols began an encirclement of their own. So picture the scene at the Kalka River, with some of the Rus trying to escape to the West Bank, Others, not knowing what was going on, were still trying to cross to the east, and Mongol archers were firing volley after volley of arrows into their midst. Some of the army, led by Mr. Zlad the Bold, managed to cut their way through the Mongol ring and escaped the Dnieper, where he destroyed as many boats as he could to stop the Mongols from crossing that river. Mr. Zlad of Kiev was not so lucky. He realised he was trapped, and so along with his contingent, he surrendered but the Mongols were not in the mood for mercy, had them all slaughtered. And following their victory, the Mongols had finally had enough and turned east for home. And you can understand why. Jebet and Subutai's expedition had been history's longest cavalry raid, with the Mongols riding some 5,500 miles or 8,900 kilometres in three years. As for the Rus, on the one hand, they'd suffered a disastrous defeat, but on the other, their lands had not been invaded, the Mongols had disappeared, and it didn't look like the Cumans would be any kind of serious threat any time soon. Okay, going to leave it there for this week. Next time we'll look at the reasons for the Rus defeat, uh, the aftermath of the Battle of the Kalka River, and then take a look at what happened 15 years later. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, then there's three ways of doing it via the website, historyofrussia.podbean.com, or there's Twitter, at HistoryRussia1, or via email, NordicWorld at Outlook.com. So, until next time, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon.